Well, good morning. Good morning. The anchor does hold. Uh, as many of you know, I was not scheduled to preach to you this morning, uh, but I'm here. And, uh, we are going to look at God's Word. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 18, and we'll go down to verse 27. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 to 27. Uh, while you're finding your place, now I know that many of you have probably received an email from me this week, uh, just kind of explaining some of the, the situation that went, went, went there. Um, and you know, I just have to say that, that the Lord has other plans, and we will be faithful to continue to look for other pastors uh, to come and, and to serve this church. So this morning, uh, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 8, and I've entitled this message, The Faith to Continue, The Faith to Continue. So I'll read the text, and we'll pray, and then we will dive in. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to come over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to him, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather together as your church. We thank you for the freedom that we have to do that. We thank you for your word that you have given us that you speak to us even today through your word, God. God. We ask that you would speak to us this morning as we work through this text. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know that many of you own a home. Uh, some of you might be looking for a home right now. Some of you might be saving for a home at this very moment. Wherever you're at in the home owning process, I know that one thing that, that you will not do is that you will not buy that home sight unseen. Most of you would, would never do that. Maybe a few of you might, but most of you would never do that. Instead, you're going to go out and you're going to inspect the home yourself. You're gonna drive around the neighborhood. You're gonna check out the school district. You are gonna make sure that the price is fair and that the home inspection checks out. Some of you might even bring your friends and your family over to look at the home with you to, to give you a second opinion. None of that is unheard of. In fact, it is expected. Purchasing a home is a big investment. Not only are you going to have to pay back the huge loan that you're going to take from the bank, but there are a lot of other intangibles that go with that as well. It's going to determine a number of things, who your friends are, 
where your kids are going to go to school, where you're going to be able to work, what you can and cannot do on your property, and a number of other things. And so before you go and before you purchase a home, you count the cost. Not just the cost of the home, how it's going to impact your budget, but you count the cost of all of the other intangibles that come with it. And that's to be expected. Everyone expects that you're going to count the cost when it comes to purchasing a home. But there are other areas in our life besides buying a home where we need to count the cost. And one area in particular is our faith. We must count the cost of following Jesus. Just to give you a bit of background of this text that we're diving in here to to today is Jesus has just finished preaching his famous Sermon on the Mountain. He's come down. And he has a great crowd of disciples who have gathered around him. Not just the 12 disciples, but, but a great crowd of other disciples and other onlookers who have, who have heard his sermon, who have heard about his sermon, and they've gathered to him. And as, as Jesus comes down at the beginning of chapter 8, he heals a leper. He heals a paralytic. He heals Peter in law, Peter's mother-in-law, who has a fever. He casts out demons from people and he heals all kinds of of other people who are sick in, in many other different ways and Jesus has done this for a specific reason in verse 17 it says that he's done this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases he's done this to show that he is the Christ that he is the God sent savior all of this has taken place This great crowd is gathered around him. And this brings us to what Jesus says in verse 18. So look there with me. Now, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And so because of all of what he has taught, because of all of what he's done, this great crowd of people has has gathered to Jesus. And and Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, presumably here, and he asks them to get a boat together, to get it ready, that they might get in this boat and go to the other side. And it's the other side of the Sea of Galilee is what he's talking about here. And there are, there are two men who hear this, and I'm sure that there are others besides the 12 who hear this as well, but there are two men in particular who hear Jesus' command, and they come to him in turn. The first is a scribe who comes to Jesus, and, and in verse 19 he says, Teacher, I will go with you wherever. Wherever you go, I will be there with you, whether it be the other side of the Sea of Galilee, whether it be to the ends of the earth, whatever it is, I am going to be with you. Now, if you're a leader and somebody comes to you and says that, you're like, yes, finally, somebody has caught on to my vision. Somebody is ready to go with me. Yes, come with me. Let's do this. But how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus doesn't immediately turn to this man and offer him a seat in the boat. He doesn't say, yes, come on, come with me, let's go and do this. No, Jesus responds with this enigmatic statement about foxes and birds. What does Jesus mean by this? What does Jesus want to show us by this? Well, what he wants this man to see, what he wants us to see is that following Jesus isn't easy. Following Jesus doesn't always lead to a life of luxury. Jesus didn't even have what birds and foxes have. Jesus didn't have a home that he was going to go to every single night and lay his head. Jesus didn't have a whole lot of possessions. 
Jesus was an itinerant minister who went around from place to place. Jesus didn't have the things that that others may have. And he wanted this man to see that. He wants us to see that. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that, that, that God doesn't bless us from time to time. If you've been reading through Scripture with us this year, you, you've read about the family of Abraham. You should be reading about him, him now, or them now. You see that, that they have been immensely blessed by the Lord. So I don't want to give you the impression that God does not bless us, but, but we, need to, we need to think about it for what it is. It is a blessing. It's not a right. It's not even an expectation that we should have. Jesus is not promising us here a life of luxury. He, he isn't promising that all things are going to go well for us all the time, that difficulties and setbacks will, not, will never come in our life. Clearly, Jesus wants this man to see that. Clearly, Jesus wants us to see that. He wants us to see that, that he is not promising us a, a middle-class lifestyle where we have two or, or three kids who are well-behaved, a four-bedroom house with a two-and-a-half-car garage and a, and a white picket fence that is surrounding that in the, the best area of town, a car for everyone in the family, a dog that is always by your side. Jesus does not promise us a middle-class lifestyle. Those who follow Jesus should not expect that they're going to immediately be blessed, that life is going to go well for them all the time, that there are never going to be any setbacks whatsoever in this life. There's a cost to discipleship. We must count the cost. Now, immediately after the conversation with this first man, the second disciple comes to Jesus. So look at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And so this man, he comes to Jesus and he says, look, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be one of the disciples that goes with you, but I've got some stuff I got to do first. I've got to go and I have to bury my father. When this man talks about burying his father, we don't know where his father's at. I mean, did his father just die and he needs to go back and perform this funeral or or is his father on his deathbed and is he about to pass or is his father got, got a lot of life in him? And he doesn't want to leave his father because he wants his inheritance. He doesn't want his father to be mad at him. We're not sure. The text doesn't tell us what is going on with his father at this time. But the text does move to Jesus' response. And so let's, let's look at that. Verse 22. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now reading that, you might think, well, Jesus, man, you're harsh. You're insensitive. Maybe you're even unbiblical at this point. I mean, Israelites, Christians, they're supposed to honor their mother and their their father. They're supposed to honor them in life and in death, to be there with them, to, to bury them. This was even true of the high priests who were normally to stay away from those who had passed so that they might be able to perform their duties in the temple. If someone in their family passed, they were to leave that and to go and bury them. Now, if commitment to parents were the norm, even a a biblical expectation, then we have to wonder, well, why is this counsel? Why is Jesus giving this counsel? What is he getting at here? And I believe what he wants us to see is that following Jesus must be our main priority. Following Jesus must be our main priority. Nothing should get in the way. Nothing should deter us, no matter what it is. It should not come between us and him. 
And Jesus expects us to be willing to put all things before him, our family, our life, our business, our, our money, our career, our preferences, our wants, our desires. Jesus wants to be supreme in our life and to truly be his disciple, then we must allow him that supreme position. We should not allow the concerns or the rejection of others, including our family, including our friends, to get in the way of following Jesus. Amen. Jesus is not gonna say on judgment day, oh, I understand. Like, it, it might have cost you your family or it might have cost you your friends or, or your business or your life if you were gonna say that you are my follower. I understand how hard that might have been for you. Come on into the kingdom anyways. That's not gonna happen. If we are gonna follow Jesus, we must be willing to give up everything for him. If we're gonna reach others for Christ, we must be willing to give up everything for Jesus. If it makes us uncomfortable, we give it up. We give it up for Jesus no matter if it makes us uncomfortable or not. If it costs us something, we are willing to give it up so that we might follow Jesus. We must put Jesus and his mission to make disciples first and primary in our life. We must count the cost. I believe that's what Jesus wants us to see here in this opening section. We must count the cost if we're going to be his disciples. And those who have counted the cost should not be thrown off course when storms arise. Those who have counted the cost should not be thrown off course when storms arise. You see, true discipleship is, is not always easy. Remember, Jesus is not saving us so that we can live a comfortable, middle-class lifestyle, so, so that we can live a life that is devoid of all setbacks and all disappointments. We've seen that this week. I know many of you have probably been disappointed I've been disappointed. I know that there are times in our life other than this week where, where we have experienced disappointments, where we have experienced setbacks. And setbacks are gonna occur. Storms are going to arise when we least expect them. Look at the text in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves but he was asleep. And so here Jesus' disciples, Jesus' disciples have, have committed to following him. Wherever they go, they, they will leave everything and they're following Jesus. They've done that in the past. They've left their family. They've left everything, their businesses, whatever it might be. And they've been following Jesus around for this time. And they're continuing to follow him. They go and they get a boat and they all get in this boat and they are traveling out to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they're out there in the middle and this huge storm arises and it wasn't uncommon for storms to come up on the sea just kind of at a moment's notice based on the geography of the area and the weather patterns that, that take place there but this was no ordinary storm this wasn't just one of these things that would spin up every now and again this was a massive storm and the boat was being swamped by the waves and that's what Matthew wants us to see that that this storm was huge think like a hurricane or if you guys have ever seen the show, The Greatest Catch, you know, what the disciples are going through, what they're experiencing reminds me of what the sailors on those ships who were out there fishing experienced. They have huge storms, huge waves that are just coming over the boat, threatening to just sink their whole operation. And this storm was so massive that the disciples who were seasoned sailors thought that they were 
they were going to die. And they run to Jesus. And they're like, they go to wake him up. And they're wondering, I mean, you may be wondering, well, how is Jesus even sleeping at this time? I mean, the, the waves are crashing over the sea, uh, crashing over the boat. It's threatening to, to sink that boat into the sea. Violently, this is happening. Jesus is asleep in the boat. Verse 25, and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, Mark, in his gospel, he has this same account, and, and he records them as saying, Teacher, do you care? Do you not care that we are perishing? And anyone who has ever lived for the Lord has probably felt like, like they feel at this time when adversity comes, when storms come. Lord, do you even care? Do you even love me, Lord? Are you there for me? I'm sure that you felt like that. I've felt like that before in the past. Lord, do you care? Do you even love me? I mean, if you did, you wouldn't be sleeping right now. You would be calming this storm that I am facing. We wouldn't be about to die. We wouldn't be about to drown. This whole thing wasn't to be about to, to sink. Lord, do you even care? Do you even love me? Look what Jesus does in verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Amen. The first question that Jesus asks after they wake him is, Why are you afraid? Why? Why are you afraid? Why is your, your, your faith small and not big? After all, they've been hanging out with Jesus for all of this time. They've seen Jesus perform all of these different miracles. They've seen him heal all of these different people. Not only have they heard his authoritative teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but they've seen him as he's come down time and time again, as he's walking towards the sea to get in the boat, healing people over and over and over again. They should know that Jesus is, is capable of, of handling any situation that they might face, even right here where the boat is about to sink. That God is in control, that Jesus is in control. Amen. You see, the God that we serve is, is not a small God. The God that we serve is a big God. He is capable of handling those situations that, that we believe are small, as well as he is capable of handling those situations that we think are big, that, that are life-shattering situations. Our God is a big God who can do what nobody else can do when nobody else can do that. And that's what we see here in this text. Jesus calms the sea. And when the text says that, that Jesus calms the sea, he calmed the sea. It wasn't just like these, these waves died down a little bit so that the boat now is not going to, to sink and they can get to the shore safely. No, the waves dissipated. The wind stopped. The sea was so calm. It was like glass. And you could see your reflection in the sea. Jesus calms the sea. Amen. Nothing 
is unmanageable for God. He can handle any storm, whether it be physical or whether it be spiritual, that is thrown at us. He can handle it in a moment's notice and he completely calms everything around us. Our God is a big God who has got this. And we need to trust that he does. We need to trust the Lord that he can take care of us when when there is chaos and he can take that which is in chaos and he can make something beautiful out of that. He did that when he created the world. When you read through Genesis, we, we read in the beginning that this world was in chaos and God took the world and he created something beautiful out of it. And he continues to do that over and over and over again. Our God is a big God who's got this. When things start to get turbulent, when the wind picks up, when the waves are start crashing against us, when they start crashing against the church, we aren't to fret, we aren't to grow anxious. Our God is a big God who's got this. Instead of feeling hopeless, instead of worrying, we need to remember who our God is. We need to remember what he has done. We need to remember his love and we need to remember his care and we need to remember his mercy that he is poured out on us the grace that he has given us time and time and time again our God is a big God who's got this but why if you're anything like my oldest son he would ask this question I'm sure he's burning to ask this right now why why dad why should we trust and worship Jesus even though storms arise why? Well, this story is similar and it's, it's remarkably similar to another story in the Old Testament, the story of Jonah. In both instances, men find themselves out in the middle of a sea with a massive storm that is raging. In both instances, the sailors panic while there's one who is sleeping in the boat. In both instances, the men call out to God to save them because they think that they are going to die. In both instances, God saves them. The sea becomes calm like glass in a moment's notice. There's a remarkable similarity to these stories. But there's also a slight difference. Do you remember how the sailors in Jonah were saved? They were saved because Jonah was thrown into the sea. And we don't see that happening here. Jesus doesn't throw himself into the sea. Instead, Jesus does what God the Father did back in Jonah. He rebukes the wind and the waves, and he calms the sea on his own. And Jesus is able to rebuke the wind and the waves because Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Later in the gospel, Jesus likens himself to Jonah when he says that, that he would be in the grave just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, but Jesus would resurrect from that. While Jesus doesn't die here, Jesus does die in the future. He was cast into the tomb for three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale. He resurrected from the tomb just like Jonah did. And his resurrection from the grave resulted in salvation, but it didn't result in salvation in the same way that it resulted in salvation in Jonah, right? Jesus didn't go and preach as Jonah began to preach there. No, Jesus saved us because Jesus is the salvation that Jonah was preaching about. Jesus is our Savior. 
He is the true and better Jonah. Jesus has come, Jesus has died so that he might be able to rebuke all of the storms in our life, so that he might ultimately be able to do away with all of the chaos in this world, so that he might be able to come and set everything right. Jesus is able to calm the storm that day for the disciples. Jesus is able to calm the storm in our life each and every single day because he is God who has come and defeated death for us. He has taken the wrath that we deserve on himself. He has died in our place. He is our Savior. He is the one who smooths the sea. He is the one that takes that which is in chaos and makes something beautiful out of it. Our God is a big God who's got this. In the small things of life, in the, in the major things of life, in the massive cosmic scale, Our God is a big God who has this. Nothing surprises him. Nothing sets him back. Nothing gets in his way. He takes that which is in chaos and disorder and he calms it and he makes something beautiful out of it. Our God is a big God who's got this. And so when storms of life come against you, don't worry, don't fret, don't turn to others besides the Lord. Don't turn to substances or materialism or anything else. Run to God. Run to Jesus. Worship him. Marvel at him. Allow him to save you. Our God is a big God who's got this.